1: Welcome to the Library Science Channel on New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer and today I'm speaking with Jade Davis, author of The Other Side of Empathy, published by Duke University Press in August 2023. In The Other Side of Empathy, Jade Davis contests the value of empathy as an effective or critical tool. Whether focusing on technology, colonialism or racism, she shows how empathy can obscure relationships of dominance, control, submission and victimization, arguing that these histories taint the whole concept of empathy. Drawing on digital archives regarding 19th century ethnographic museums and human zoos, Davis shows how empathetic responses erase culpability. She also contends that empathy's mediation through digital technology cannot lead to more ethical actions. And so in Empathy's Place, Davis proposes mutual recognition as a way to see and experience others beyond colonial modes of empathy. Jade Davis is Director of Educational Technology and Learning Management at the University of Pennsylvania Library. Jade, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Um, And before we dive into your recent book, could you share a little bit with listeners about your background, where you grew up and, and went to school, and what brought you to your work in media and communication studies?
0: Um, I can. It's a little bit complicated, because there's not necessarily a direct path. Um, But I grew up between the Midwest and California, Um, we would move back and forth between Chicago and sort of the suburbs of Sacramento. Um, And I went to undergraduate school in Hawaii, which is one of the reasons I sort of became obsessed with human zoos um, because before deciding to go there, we had gone on a family vacation um, and ended up at the Polynesian Cultural Center. And I talk a bit about that experience at the book and why it was a very complicated thing for me. Um, And I studied French, which is not communication studies, um, but I already spoke the language and I was in Hawaii and I really just wanted to ride my bike. And one of the things that happened in one of my classes was we were introduced to Sarchi Bartman and human zoos as a concept. And it was the first time in all of my educational career where I saw a Black woman who had a body that looked like mine. And the only conversation we were able to have was about how she was exploited. And in that conversation, the only way you could talk about it is to talk about the grotesque And I was very, very uncomfortable with with that. Um, And so I ended up at NYU in the French Studies program, which is like a history-based program where you do interdisciplinary stuff. And I was very curious about the questions of race in France and how they differ from the questions of race in the United States. Um, And I saw the digital as a way uh, for people to make new knowledge That was happening a lot in France with some of the marginalized groups. And I sort of became obsessed with that, but then I had a corporate career uh, for a couple of years. And I realized about five years in, I still had questions. Um, It was mainly about identity, the digital world, and race. And communication studies seemed like the best fit for the types of questions that I had. So I ended up um, in communication studies. I had a born digital dissertation uh, where I took a whole bunch of photographs that had been digitized in official archives from all over the place and reposted them on Tumblr and sort of watched what happened to them. Um, It was a really, really interesting experience. People who followed the Tumblr blog started sending in their own family pictures to be added to the archive, which was really, really wonderful. And I fell in love with a whole lot of photographs and just said, this is vintage Black beauty. Um, It doesn't matter where they came from. These are the photos that exist of these people. And if we can represent them in other spaces, we can divorce them from sort of the the shackles of only seeing oppression and sort of just allow the people to be people. and a couple of those pictures that I was like really moved by um, and that people who went to the Tumblr blog responded to a lot ended up in the book as two of the um, groups that I talk about.
1: Oh, that's an amazing trajectory also, just to think about how, how we end up where we are um, doing like a lot of different meaningful things along the way. Um, I, yeah. I love how yeah.
0: that, and yeah. It, it was one of those things where it, it felt, sort of like everything coalesced into one thing. Um and communication studies was probably the right home um, because I usually just talk about the digital media culture technology component. Um, but the beautiful thing was there was also performance studies. And that allowed me to dive into affect and writing voice and thinking about how we represent what we're finding differently. And I think that was really meaningful and important for me.
1: Oh, that's amazing. Um... Well, and so then you've kind of hinted at um, what I wanted to chat about next, which is really how you arrived at this book, uh, but I'm curious if you can expand on on how you, you got here and um, what your journey has been on, like, thinking specifically about
0: empathy. So I have a PhD, which means that I've done a whole lot of school, <laughs> I've done a whole lot of school. Um, And the experience of Sarchi Bartman has sort of been the experience of dealing with things that have to do with race in the academy. Um, It's either Afro-pessimism or it's, this is what oppression looks like. Uh, At one point, I think the thing that really started me going, I need to examine this a bit more, was there's a blog called Sociological Images and they had a trigger warning and it was for racism and oppression and then it was just a picture of a group of performers and it was it was from an ethnographic show and so because these people participated in this thing that we've decided is horrible yes it might be horrible everybody associated with it becomes part of that But the only way we get to understand that is by seeing the people who were exploited, who were there for a reason, though. So part of the process of sort of learning about how we talk about different groups was seeing the places where people just sort of get their agency completely removed and get they get objectified in a particular way and realizing that. And I knew this before I was in graduate school that I'm always going to be part of the group that's objectified in that way, regardless of who I am. And so the question of empathy for me was always, okay, if if we talk about being able to code switch and we talk about being able to navigate these different roles and navigate these different conversations, that's always on the side of the people who have the least power. And if we talk about empathy, we say empathy is for everybody. But more often than not, the people who have violence inflicted on them are the ones who are asked to empathize with the situation the person who was violent towards them was in. And it doesn't go both ways. And I found that really limiting. And I also want people to have protected brain space. It's okay to have negative thoughts. Like People are going to hate me. It's fine if you hate me. Just don't kill me. And so empathy has always felt like this really big non-action that doesn't lead to anything more, but especially in my discipline, um, as I started reading more and more books around technology and technology and race from people who I really, really respect, often I would get to the conclusion and the solution to get out of bias and get out of all these things was empathy. And it was like, that's what, that doesn't make any sense because that's not how empathy works. Um, And so I decided I needed to like, make sure that what I was thinking was sound because everything else was saying, no, empathy fixes everything. But I was just feeling alienation and isolation in so many situations. I was like, okay, let's, let's figure out what I'm actually feeling and thinking and see if I can make this make sense. Um, Not just for myself, but for other people. So that if I have to have the conversation, I can say, let's figure out what our actions need to be. And that was sort of the the starting point of the book. Like, what do I want people to actually see? What do I need them to be able to talk to me about? Why don't I give you the book so we can start there?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's a really, really great um, foundation for having conversations, I think. Um, and you made a distinction then in the introduction that your book is a critique of empathy culture, not the ideas... ideals behind empathy so could you speak a little more about the difference between those two things and how you define them and then um in expanding on this in the book you, you noted that empathy has become bound up with ideals of altruism and colonialism so i was interested in how you've seen these like definitions of empathy shift over time and how you developed your own understanding of it
0: um So I don't know that there's been a big shift over time outside of the one big shift. Uh, And I should preface it by saying that empathy is one of those things that we talk about today. And this is why it's a cultural thing. We talk about it today as though it is an absolute thing that all humans are capable of and we use it to Determine the goodness of people. So like a lot of things that a lot of times when people talk about psychopaths, they'll be like, you know that they're a psychopath because they don't have empathy. Um, You'll see it when people are being ableist and talking about autism. One of the defining features is they don't have empathy. And that's not necessarily true because one it's a man-made concept that's like less than 200 years old Um, but also it then assumes that there's a proper way to respond to learning about other people's situations and it creates this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways where okay I have to do this performative act of emoting and if I'm able to do that I know that this is a good thing um, the big shift that I mentioned earlier is just that empathy was about art objects and feeling into those and the emotional overwhelmness you can have when you're observing something. And when it moved to people, we, we did this thing that we often do, where we assume that we aren't objectifying people because they're people, we know that they are people, but it's actually just really objectifying them because in many ways, the point of empathy is to remove a person from their own experience. So their experience becomes yours. And that was sort of the part that makes me uncomfortable because um, when I think of doing ethnographic work or doing any work that involves a group of people, you can get it wrong. Like we're going to fail and that's okay. But empathy sort of shuts down the conversation point and stops listening in such a way that if somebody says, no, that's not the right response or no, this isn't what I need. It sort of closes off of the ability to have that part of the conversation. And so um, as I was developing my understanding of empathy, one of the things that I was trying to sort of track and watch and gauge was, okay, am I doing empathy stuff? If yes, what purpose is it serving? But also what are other people saying is empathy? And one of my favorite examples is uh, whenever I go to VR conferences or um, working sessions because we have a, a program called Immersive in my unit that does a bunch of stuff VR. So I end up going to a whole bunch of VR talks all the time. Um, people talk about how it is an empathy machine and they know that it's an empathy machine because they went into this experience and they cried. And I, I was like, what? Hold on, let me stop for a second. Why is crying a signifier of all of this stuff And why is it a good thing that you put on this headset and watch this thing, and now you're uncontrollably crying? And what is that actually doing? Um, And nobody's been able to tell me what it's doing. And they can't really articulate why crying is good. It's really just they are overwhelmed in that moment, I think. And one of the reasons I'm like, this is empathy culture is... We should have better words to describe what we're feeling in those moments and what happened to us, but if we're just like no it was just empathy we sort of shut down the ability for those experience that elicit strong emotional responses to really be examined and lead to change that is required. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it's like I'm not against empathy. I think the ability to do perspective taking work um, to anticipate probable emotional responses from people based on your actions or think about what an experience of somebody else might have been is a positive thing. But if we do that at the cost of closing down our ability to also be an act an actor in the world because this objectified experience, is like something I can better myself with. That's weird. (laughs) Or at least I I think it's weird.
1: (laughs) I would say it's weird. And it's also like, uh, limiting, like you've pointed out, it's really limiting, limiting. And I think your book really revealed for me the way um, as this like empathy culture, the vocabulary of empathy has made its way into so many spaces, including disciplines that I work in, we haven't thought about exactly what the words mean and where they come from and like what those words make possible and how we can also do things beyond that. We shouldn't let, as you said, empathy just like stop us at at that point.
0: Yeah. And I think when the only way we're told we can justly interact with other people or interact with other people's suffering is through empathy we don't really look for the totality of the things that we're experiencing it becomes easy and beneficial to to tack on to the nuggets of suffering because we know it's going to elicit that response like the crying it's like oh okay if I found the oppression if I found the bad thing I don't need to do anything else because this is the thing that's going to make people excited. Um, and I don't mean excited, like happy, but excited as in more stimulated than they would be otherwise, because it's an easy thing to clamp onto. Um, and I'm more interested in nuance and I'm more interested in the actions we take. Once we realize there's a space where people are suffering.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Um, and I guess, um, one, you know, thinking about nuance, I was really grateful and excited to see you um, in this discussion of empathy, diving into where that fits in with archival work and the discourse around archives. And you wrote that the academic gaze in the archive is just another empathy manhunt. How do technology and media and archives rely on empathy as a way to engage with the past? And how do you see this um I guess like limiting the nuance of our engagement with
0: the historic record. I think this is, this is a complicated question. Um, I don't think people intentionally go into spaces or into technology um, expecting to have an empathetic experience but I think that they're primed to do that. And I think so much of empathy culture says that the, the key to fixing so many problems that are inequality-based is empathy. And when I think of things like technologies and the archives, that is a space of inequality. There are power components to that that most people aren't going to have access to. Um, there are people who control the spaces. They are, gateca- they are gatekeepers for those spaces. Um, And while we all theoretically can interact with them, it's going to be an experience that's designed by somebody else. And for archives and libraries in particular, obviously critical librarianship is a thing now, but for a very long time, they were thought to be neutral spaces. Um, And one of the limits of empathy is that it is a bias based response. So you're more likely to have an empathetic response to something that is familiar to you. So it's like an in-group emotional ability, more or less. And the archives were collecting things from groups that weren't part of the groups that the archivists were part of. Um, There is obviously a movement in librarianship to add more empathy as a way to sort of deal with some of the tensions that come from the past practices of collecting. Um, but one of the reasons I find that very limiting is because again, when we think about the way power works with empathy, it often feels like uh, let's clean up the sins of the past instead of let's like, let's acknowledge the things that happened in the past. Let's acknowledge that these bad things happened, or we had bad practices, or these things were collected with bad faith and actually talk about it. Let's figure out who needs to be at the table now, and let's not say that because I can empathize with the situation that caused these things to be in the archive. I understand that these people were exploited. I see that this was a bad thing. That's not enough. Anna, it's sort of doing the same thing as the past, in other words, um, because a lot of people in the past were like, yes, these people are less than, but I'm collecting history for the future and it's great. So it's fine that I'm doing these things. Um, and I think empathy with the colonial gaze, because we're all part of the post-colonial world, um, it it just ends up reinforcing because it can't be separated from power, the things that created the initial archive. So we often don't get new trajectories in those spaces or new trajectories with technology. It tends to be the same things over and over again. It's just the way that we talk about them and our emotional response ends up more heightened than it was previously. Um, I think that one of the things this question made me think of is what, what would be better? And I think having the work that goes into creating things be more visible would go a long way to helping just shift what we're seeing. Because get a corpus, it's like, oh, this has been thought through. This is great. This is exactly what I need. And the limits are invisible to you unless you know where to look or you know where the nooks and crannies are. And by being more um, intentional about where things are coming from, we're better able to avoid some of the the pitfalls of us trying to empathize with people who, one, we can't talk to if we're talking about people who are long dead, um, but also it makes it so that we don't assume that what we're doing is the right thing. Like so much of this for me is about where are the places where we make mistakes or we make assumptions that are just wrong and end up perpetuating more oppression and part of that is by not acknowledging my own state my own emotions my own agency in this i'm sort of erasing the ability to critique that as part of this thing that we're we're working with And I think that's true for both archives and technology.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad that you've mentioned agency a few times because I think like what we do in archives and, and with technology when we talk about empathy is often not like giving back agency. And in thinking about like what instead, I don't have the answers for how to always give back agency to things in the archive. But like those are the questions maybe we need to explore
0: a little more. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, yeah, I don't I don't have an answer either. I'm hoping that the book can be a starting point because I, I, I think we can ask better questions and, and figure out different ways of being with our work and being with objects um, and being with people in the past. I just don't think we're quite there yet because I think we're still very polarized and we're still very, very empathy obsessed as this is the thing that will fix it.
1: Totally. Um, and I mean, speaking of things, In the past, a lot of your writing in the first two chapters of this book is about human zoos. And I'd love if you could share a little with listeners about some of the examples you've written about and then how empathy has played a role for current scholars looking back on that work and how it impacts and limits what we see in that material.
0: Um, So I have a mild obsession with human zoos because I think that humans are just naturally curious about other people who are different, and that's fine. Um, I also have a very bad reality TV show addiction, which I'm like, see, I would totally probably be a person who went to human zoos. And obviously, I've mentioned I've been to the Polynesian Cultural Center, which technically is is a human zoo. Um, And I, I think it's a really important place to start because empathy and human zoos are being they're sort of coming into being at the same time, and they're coming into being with advances in photography and capturing um, images of actual people. And so they're this really fascinating moment of massive cultural and technological change, similar to what we're experiencing now, um, where people suddenly have access to different people. the example that I go into in the most depth is a group of people from the Koikoi tribe, uh, which is the same group as Sarchi Bartman, uh, were brought to Paris in 1888. Uh, There were families that were brought. There were um, individuals. uh, The two that I talk about the most are Elizabeth and Jacob, who I adored. I have a a relationship with them in my head, but I know it's in my head Um, because I I find them to be very, very fun. And one of the things that I think is really special about right now and really special about the digitization of all of the archives uh, across Different libraries, um, different companies, too, is that there are these images that have been reproduced over and over again in scholarship, um, specifically of Lisbeth, just to sort of, because it's a photograph of a, I can't say it in English because I learned it in French. So I apologize, of a hottentot, I think is the right way to say it in English, um, which is an offensive word, but she was like the photograph that is used. And it turns out that there was this huge marketing campaign when they went to Paris. And there are just all of these interviews that they did where people came and spoke to them. There are stories about them going out to plays and to circuses. Um, I found a newspaper article where they talk about how beautiful the women are when they spoke. And there's just this really rich history that sort of says, yes they were part of this human zoo experiment that happened in europe in the late 1800s but they also had agency in that moment they were getting paid they had benefits when they when they um were put on display they had access to things that they wouldn't have access to before that was that these things were all very important to them and i think it's important to acknowledge that because when we pull forward to today, where we're in, again, that technological moment where there's all these new technologies, culture is shifting very rapidly. Um, we're able to connect and see more people. We're in a same situation where there are all these campaigns to sort of, this is a thing to say, th- these are the things that you have to see, this is how you have to care about, and this is what it looks like. And they're all very empty signifiers of empathy. So I know that Twitter is no longer a thing, but like retweeting for awareness. Yes, it's an action and it's a way to say, look, I saw this and I cared about it. It's very, very performative. Um, And when you look back in the archive of the human zoos, you see people who are doing similar things like, yeah, I went to the show, but I'm writing this article in the newspaper because I'm so unhappy with what I saw. And it's sort of like, okay, but you, you are participating in it, and you are also suddenly reducing these people to nothing in many ways, and not acknowledging the richness and nuance of the experience that they had. Um, so, like, when you start going into the newspaper articles, you you see stories of, like, kids who were French going into the space where the people were doing their performances and playing with the kids that were brought to France because they were just being kids and all of these things are happening and yes the backdrop is this institution that's really awful and rooted in racism in many ways and the grotesque and all those wonderful words that we know how to use but there's also so much beauty and so much humanness and the other part that we're able to retrieve now that everything's digitized. Um, And the reason I say now that everything's digitized is because um, one of the limits in how people were using these archives before, um, and I've mostly seen the use of the photographs. I've seen the photographs reproduced all over the place Um, is they aren't housed with the newspaper archives. They're in completely different places. And so now that there's Gallica, everything goes into the same index and you get to look it up. And if you know the right metadata terms, suddenly everything comes together and you start seeing new words to look up in other archives. So then you go to like a newspaper.com and you go, huh, I hadn't seen this name before. I wonder if I can find this name somewhere else. And you start being able to create these threads that allow for just a completely different story um, that could be meaningful in different ways to people. And one of the things that I did talk about in the book was two books that are the after the aftermath of museum shows that were revisiting the ethnographic shows that the museums had put on way back when. And they took two very different approaches. Um, one was the much more common approach, which is let's just reproduce the human zoo exhibits to the best of our ability without actually bringing people here. But you will walk through this and sort of experience what it was like. Wasn't that horrible? And that doesn't allow for the moment of like, maybe something was fun or maybe I enjoyed something. That's something I should question myself about and figure out why did I enjoy that or what am I actually seeing? And the other one, um, there is a book called From Samoa with Love, which I'm saying, because I want everybody to see the book From Samoa with Love. It's a great one. Um, Rather than trying to recreate the human zoos. They went to the German Samoan descendants and said, this is what we want to do. And they worked with them to create an exhibit that took all of the artifacts and sort of reunited them with the people. And it allowed for the people in the city, which was like my favorite, it's sort of one of the most beautiful things, the people in the German city who had ties to the German colonial history in Samoa went to the show and were so moved by it and saw themselves in it so much, even though they weren't centered, that they brought their own items from home to the museum so that they could add them to their archive of German Samoan artifacts. And so I would love to see more of that because I think that's the better work we can do with human zoos and colonial archives That is where the pictures exist of people from certain groups. That is just the reality of it. If we only allow them to exist as an artifact of a horrible practice, we are re-denying the humanity of the people. And we're also re-denying the ability of people who live today, who often don't get to see themselves in the past, to recognize themselves as people who always had agency and the ability to move. Um, And, If we can acknowledge that the people that we often say are the least powerful have agency, my hope is that as we start thinking through technology today and our role in it, we realize, hey, maybe it's okay if I unplug the machine. I actually have agency to stop things or to change things. I can do a small action that might make a difference. I can stop and reflect on What am I adding and what am I asking of others as I react or respond to these things in these new technologically driven spaces where I'm encountering a lot of people? Um, And that's really important to me. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
1: Yeah, and it's really exciting to like think about the possibilities. Um yeah. 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 And <laughs> uh, I, I do want to yeah.
0: say, like for for me for this, um, I tried to name the people from um the Khoikhoi tribe who were in Paris, um, given some of the books, because part of what was happening was there were they were uh part of a medical exhibition thing where they were studying them and talking about differences in their bodies and that's where their names are recorded. I don't know if they're right. So like when people are like, why did you write the book? I'm like, it's just for this one part. Really, I really hope that somebody sees the book and if names are wrong or if it's their family members, like correct it. Like that's what we should be doing now. We should be looking at the past and saying, yes, all the stuff that's here was accurate for the time. But what are the hidden things that were recorded here, and what are the things that we can correct today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you you dig into some of the the issues, with like some individuals who are obviously named wrong in some places, and yeah. their correct name is recorded elsewhere. And I was really, um, I guess, in like the little that I have read previously about humans, I have never seen that level of like really, really detail oriented research to try to give back this agency, give people their names, um, give people these like familial connections that were somehow dropped out of um, other records. Yeah.
0: Like Elizabeth and Jacob had the worst relationship because they had this weird power struggle because she's the matriarch and he's like this He's not older than her, but he's a chief and respected in the community. And so he wants to get all the tips so he can get more brandy. And she's over having to do these performances. And at one point, they literally come to blows. And she is over him ogling woman. And it's just so very human. And we don't allow it to exist that way. It's like, um, it's similar to turning people into the noble savage, we, we infantilize people in these situations and don't allow for them to have a full human experience just because they were part of an, a machine that was designed to exploit people. Um, They were taking advantage of it too, and that's okay. We don't have to agree with it. We can say that the fact that they had to do this was bad, but to deny that it was something that was meaningful for them and something that they had some agency in, um, is isn't fair, and I know that uh, one of the other things that I talk about before I go into sort of the here's a story that I was able to find is the really bad version of human zoos that happens sometimes. But if we only allow for the very bad thing to exist as sort of the the nightmare scenario and don't allow for the nuance of that too, it means that we we just keep collapsing people into, oh my gosh, there's so much suffering. I I feel so bad knowing about all this suffering, and it's like, oh, okay, what are we supposed to do with that? Um, yeah. Especially if it's in the past, we can't we can't go back and change it. Yeah, we can only change we can only change where we are now and like
1: how we're yeah. relating with it. Yeah, um, you then move from looking at these historic materials to looking at new media and emerging technology uh what kinds of projects have been initiated to try to create empathy both through and with ai and what have you seen as some of the impacts of those
0: yeah so this is a very interesting interesting question because i don't i don't think you can actually do empathy in ai uh one of the projects that i i talked about in the book was actually called empathy ai and it was funded by i don't remember who an international organization, either the UN or the World Health Organization, I believe. Um, And it was basically about the war in Syria and trying to get people to care more about that situation. And the way that they did it is you could go in and you could look at pictures of war and then you would say if picture one or picture two made you more empathetic and it was like pictures of people with guns pointed at them or landscapes of buildings and then they did this other thing where you could overlay what would ha- what would your city look like based on like google maps if it were bombed and it was just sort of like what what is happening right now um and i i think one of the reasons why i think it's an impossibility is because i don't think the machines are people I don't think what we're seeing is intelligence even though that's what we call it i think that's marketing spin and like a language collapse thing again uh we're seeing patterns and they're human patterns so they're going to be encoded with the same biases that limit empathy anyway um and i think that's a big problem actually uh it's one of the the things that we would talk about a lot when I was in grad school was post-humanism because that was the, the big thing to talk about prior to AI. Um, and there's a movie from Disney called The Brave Little Toaster, I think. Are you familiar with this movie? I am not. Where there's like a toaster and a vacuum and they get separated from their house and they go on this big journey to get home and you end up feeling really sad for them. And the the critique that would happen in my courses with all of these other people who were studying media and technology um, was always they would get upset with me because I wouldn't feel sad for objects getting destroyed and I feel like okay <laughs> like I get it yes it's wasteful and I understand the emotion that you're having and I can cultivate that in myself but I don't think it's really that important actually and what I've been finding with the AI stuff and the push for empathy because of empathy culture as we want to see it in all of the things and when we talk about it one the examples where they've tried to do it with AI like create something that can train people to be empathetic obviously that falls flat because it ends up just being about look at what happens if your town is blown up Um, but the other side of it is that we desperately want we want it to be more than it is and it's not it's it's just similar to the empathy thing yes it's a, it's gimmicky and there might be spaces where it helps but the ability to emote with it doesn't necessarily mean anything other than you're able to extend your emotions and that's that's fine but that doesn't impact how you deal with other humans uh, there was a quote that i saw how i wish i could remember the name of the book but the the gist of it was that people were really upset that people were going into the generative AI tools and being mean to the AI and doing really offensive things in the AI. And the reason they were upset about it was because if you're willing to do that to an AI, what does that mean for how you are with other people? And I'm against that stance because I think it's, I I, I want people to have fuller access to their full emotional capacity. And I don't think it's wrong to have bad thoughts. We all have little things that we do to work out negative feelings, video games. Maybe we read books or we like horror films or we do other things just to get that type of release. And if that's a form of release for people, wouldn't it be better they do it with an AI that's not actually able to feel than to keep that bottled up and burst on other people? And so I think the question that I have about empathy and AI is why would we want it to be there? And is that a good thing? And if it is there, what is it actually giving us? Because it's really just a reflection of ourselves and the patterns we produce rather than some revolutionary thing that's actually making us able to do something better necessarily. Totally, yeah. Um. And
1: so then moving beyond empathy... You write that letting go of empathy and facing its other side is a decolonial project. Uh, How should we engage with the experiences and voices of others? And how does mutual recognition play a a role in breaking cycles of empathy? How do
0: we get there? Um, The answer is really simple. Just listen. And if somebody asks something of you, if somebody says this is something that would help me and it's something you're capable of doing that wouldn't cause harm to you, do it when you have the capacity to do it. Um, I think this comes up a lot just because in my my role, I supervise people. I actually recently was interviewing somebody and I asked them if they had any questions for me. And their question for me was, "I, I read the introduction to your book. And I wanna know how your, your stance on empathy impacts how you manage people. And I was like, oh, this is the easiest question you could have asked. I don't need to understand why the people who work for me are suffering or why they're having a hard time. I just need to make sure that I'm able to support them so that they can be successful or give them space if they actually need space at that time. They shouldn't feel obligated to try to get me to be in their position for me to do the right thing for them. And actually them having to do that is detrimental to me being a supportive supervisor because they're suddenly in a position to have to manage me and try to get my emotional state to match theirs in order for me to act. And especially if somebody's in distress, that process takes too long and I'm probably not going to get it right. So it's much easier to say, hey, I recognizing you that you are suffering and as a person who has suffered, who as a person who has needed support at times in a work environment, tell me what you need from me, because we are in this together. We are trying to move forward together. We are working on something together. This is a collaborative project we're going through by working together and living with each other in, in different ways. What do you need from me? And can I tell you what I need from you? And can we figure out where our middle ground is so that we move forward together? And that's sort of the goal of mutual recognition. It's to say that even if I try, I might miss what's happening. I might not get it. But I'll have things like that for me that are the same. And that's just part of the human experience. If we know that we are going through this together, how do we move forward in a way that feels just and beneficial for both of us? And how do we make space when we need space to deal with the big, heavy things like suffering or things that we might otherwise say, tell me everything about it so that I can now empathize with you and go, I get it. I get it. Which is really empty and frankly, not true because we all have our own very unique experiences. And so even when we get it, it's always sort of a a failure. And that's also the thing that we have to recognize is how much we fail with each other and how those moments where we fail end up being the moments where we can learn and grow the most. But to do that, we have to actually be able to recognize them and talk about them in a meaningful way. That just gives me so much hope
1: about like what is possible and how this can be transferred in like such meaningful and empowering ways into even, yeah, like our practical work situations. Yeah. Yeah yeah that's really helpful um well, I've taken a lot of your time, but before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you're working on next. no pressure um uh, but if you have any <laughs> new projects that you're hoping to work on, things you your conversations you're having, things you're writing that come out of this book or like something totally different
0: um so the one thing that I have percolating and part of it is because I was finishing I had written the first draft of the book before um. COVID, and I was finalizing it in the middle of the mess. And I was like, I could theoretically rewrite this entire book, but I am not going to do that. I don't feel like doing that. Um, But one of the things that I started thinking about a lot, and this also has to do with my obsession with self driving cars and the number of accidents they have that are um, that end in fatalities and and our inability to say who's at fault is uh, the questions that I have around morality, Um, because when I I think of things that have sort of entered into the academic sphere, like rites and rituals um, and myths and mythologies, things that are often tied with religion, morality is one of those things that hasn't sort of hopped over. Um, But I'm finding one of the questions that I keep coming back to that I'm hoping to start working on um, this coming semester, actually, uh, is the idea of abstracted morality. And all of the places where we don't take a moral stance because there's an intermediary that's done it for us, Um, usually a technological one and what that means for culture and interacting with people. Because um, if it wasn't clear my shtick is I'm very, very, very committed to understanding how people interact with each other. And I really want those experiences to be better. Selfishly for myself, I (laughs) I wanna be able to have more nuanced conversations with people. Um, But it's something that I would like to see more of in academic writing, because I think a lot of the, the questions and pitfalls we keep running into are really questions about morality. So like with the AI thing and all the conversation right now is, oh my gosh, it's either gonna be really amazing or it's going to destroy the world. I said earlier, what if we just unplug the machines? The answer to that, it's a moral dilemma. (laughs) If this has been integrated into culture and society so much, the decision to unplug it has a whole bunch of moral things tied to it that have to do with capitalism and culture. but we don't talk about them in that way, because we only talk about them in terms of progress, which is similar to empathy, and that it's a newer concept that we, once we adopted it, there that was the only thing that existed. Um, and so that, that's, that's what I hope to work on next.
1: Well, that sounds like a, a good project, a good, like, um, intellectual challenge also. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think um, it'll be fun. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Well, thank you so much. Um, Thank you for taking time to chat today. And once again, my guest is Jade Davis, author of The Other Side of Empathy, published by Duke University Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you're listening to New Books Network.